You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about him. Good morning. Good morning. Our passage today is from John 3, verses 1 through 15. Now there is a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these, things, these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, Happy New Year. Um, I'm preaching, so that's pretty good. And um, Doug brought his banana this morning, and so it's going to be a good year. I'm feeling good about 2023. Well, this morning... We come to what, for many of us, is a familiar story about a Pharisee named Nicodemus, and who Jesus says needs to be born again. This is a story about the nature of salvation and how Jesus interacts with a man who is yearning for salvation. So how does Jesus engage with a man who is concerned about salvation? What is Jesus teaching us about salvation? Well, this is a very fitting passage for us to begin this new year. Uh, This year, the pastors really want to emphasize the mission of this church. We really want to emphasize our personal evangelism. And here we come today at the next passage in John, and it's all about the gospel. It's all about the need to be born again. And I find myself regularly amazed at the providence of God. Because we just preach through books of the Bible. We just come to what's next. And here we are, beginning of the new year, at a text that captivates this theme that we have, as pastors, have been praying about and discussing. I just love that stuff. So this is a very timely message for us. Well, our passage today serves as an illustration of the point that John makes at the end of chapter 2. So if you have your Bible open, you can look at verse 23 of chapter 2, where he says, Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. 
But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. As Joey said last week, Jesus understood that these people were just attracted to him on the surface. Their belief was superficial. And Nicodemus is an illustration of this kind of person. Notice the flow. Jesus needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And then in chapter 3, now there was a man of the Pharisees. And the people are also drawn to Jesus because of the signs that he was doing. And here Nicodemus says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs you do unless God is with him. Back in chapter 1, in verse 11, we read, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And this is what we have playing out here in John chapter 3. We see what it means to be born of God. And this is a massively important issue. This is something that we have to have clarity about as Christians in our own lives. But if we are going to be reaching people with the gospel, we need to understand salvation. And so we learn three important things about salvation in these verses. First, there is a longing in us to be made right with God. Now, not everyone will understand it in those terms. But all men deep down know that there is something broken in them. They know that there is something wrong in them. And all men deep down long for God. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11 says that God has put eternity into man's heart yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. We are drawn to him. We are drawn to something beyond ourselves. And man either suppresses this longing in unrighteousness or man is drawn to God to have this longing satisfied. We will see Nicodemus display this kind of longing. Second, Salvation is entirely a work of God. There is nothing that we can do to make ourselves right with God. We cannot do enough deeds to tip the moral scales of our lives. It is impossible for us to save ourselves. God has to do this work for us. And third, salvation comes to us through faith. We must believe Jesus' message about salvation. We must believe in his atoning work on our behalf. We must believe that we do not earn and we do not add to it. By faith, we believe that his work is sufficient. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We have no boast in our salvation. It is not our doing. It is God's gift that we receive through faith. So, Citizens Church, it is my hope that you will be encouraged this morning, not only to, to marvel at the grace of God, but that you would also be encouraged in your evangelism. When we understand the truth about salvation, the mechanics of how it's working, 
we have the confidence to go and proclaim the gospel. And non-Christian friend, if you were here this morning, it is my hope that you will resonate with the character of Nicodemus. That in Nicodemus, you will see some of your own longings for God. And it is my hope that you will see that the salvation that your soul longs for is found in Christ alone. And that you can be truly and supremely satisfied in him. So before jumping in, let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to help us. Father, we're thankful for this morning to be together as your church, to be gathered, to sing your praise, to encourage one another, and to receive the wisdom of your living word. Speak to us this morning by it. Convict us of our sin. Help us to see the glory of our Savior. Give us grace this morning, Father. Grace that that goes before us, that, that follows us, that guides us and sustains us. Give us grace that that sanctifies us and and teaches us with your wisdom, that comforts us with your presence. Help us to rely on the Holy Spirit so that all of our thoughts, all of our words, all of our deeds would be to your glory and for our good. Give us, Father, a desire to honor you in all ways. Give us a desire to testify to your love, to to advance your gospel. Make us a gospel-minded people, we pray. And as we head into the unknown of this new year, give us the confidence that comes from the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Help me as I pray this morning to bring clarity to the text and to not be a stumbling block to the gospel, but that Christ would be lifted up and that we would leave here glorifying Christ. It is in his name that we pray these things. Amen. So let's first examine the longing that we have, the longing of, of a sinner. We'll start here in verses 1 through 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So here we meet Nicodemus. Uh, You probably are familiar with this character. He only shows up in John's gospel. And it only shows up three times, once here in chapter 3, once in chapter 7, where he comes to the defense of Jesus, among other Pharisees, and then once in chapter 19, where he brings burial spices for Jesus' body. And in each of these, I think that we see a progression of unbelief to belief. And so in other words, when we first meet him, he is not born again, but when we last meet him, he is indeed born again. And we read a few things about him here, that he's a Pharisee, that he's a ruler of the Jews, and in in verse 10, if you want to just jump there, we read that he is a preeminent teacher of his day. Jesus calls him the teacher of Israel. 
And so he was probably a, a part of the Sanhedrin, which is the sort of the ruling council of the Jewish people. So that would explain why he's described here as a ruler of the Jews. That'd be a very prestigious and important position. And for him to be a Pharisee and a teacher would have also been significant. Uh, who are the Pharisees? And there's a lot I could say here, but I'm going to keep that short. Uh, in Hebrew, the word is perushim, which means the separated ones. And they wanted to be separate from sinners and from the pagan empire. Uh, they largely settled in Galilee, which is one of the reasons why we see a lot of them in Jesus' ministry. And they had a zeal for the scriptures. And that is because they believed that if the Jewish people would have absolute devotion to the text, then they could become the people that God wanted them to be, and then Rome would be done away with. That sounds good, but what that became was salvation by works, salvation by law-keeping. It turned them into legalists. In John 5, Jesus rebukes their attitude regarding the adherence to the Scripture. He says, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And we also just read in chapter 2 last week how the religious leaders of the day had made the temple a place of profit for them. They were lovers of money. They were not lovers of God. They also placed heavy burdens on the people of Israel and lacked compassion, all while being easy on themselves. They were hypocrites. And according to Jesus in Matthew 11, their biggest problem is that they refused to repent. The scriptures did not change them. Jesus' message did not change their hearts, did not change the way that they lived. They understood Jesus. They, they, they talked the same rabbinic language that Jesus talked. They knew what he was saying. They just did not believe him. They did not repent because they were Arrogant. Such knowledge, but such spiritual blindness. And for how many of us is it the case that we have such knowledge of the Scripture, but we lack compassion? That we have such knowledge of the Scripture, but we are so deeply arrogant that we have this knowledge, we're so concerned for our own agendas and our own ways. Friends, let the, the Pharisees serve as a warning to us of the power of our own hearts to take that which is good from God and turn it for our own benefit. The Pharisees serve as a warning and a call for us to examine ourselves. And this is who Nicodemus is. This is the world that he lives in. He's an Old Testament expert. And he was at the top of the theological pyramid as a Pharisee. He was at the, the top of the authority structure of the Jews as a member of the Sanhedrin. And he was the preeminent teacher of his day. He had everything that would indicate that this man is right with God. If there is anybody who is going to heaven, it is Nicodemus. Yet, he comes and approaches Jesus and calls him rabbi. Nicodemus is the teacher of Israel, and he calls Jesus, who is a man without any formal rabbinic training, rabbi, which means my teacher. So why is it that he comes to Jesus in the night? 
Well, culturally, the night is the time when rabbis and students of the scripture would come together to study and discuss. But there's something else going on here. He knows that there is something unique about Jesus. He knows that God is with him and that he might be able to teach him what it is that he's longing to know. And Jesus' response shows us why Nicodemus came. Did you notice in verse 3 how it says that Jesus answered him? Nicodemus did not ask a question. Nicodemus didn't mention anything about the kingdom of God. What's going on? Well, remember at the end of chapter 2 that we are told that Jesus knew all people and that he knew what was in man. He knew what people thought. He knew the longings and desires of people's hearts. And Jesus knew what was in Nicodemus' heart, even though Nicodemus didn't ask a question. Jesus answers the question that was in his heart. And in his heart, Nicodemus knew that he was a fake. He knew that he was a hypocrite. He was religious on the outside, but dead on the inside. His heart is full of fear. It's full of doubt. It's full of anxiety. There's no rest for his soul. He has done and excelled in everything that he has been told will bring him peace with God. But he has not found it. What he longed for was acceptance from God. What he longed for was belonging to the kingdom of God. What he longed for was salvation. What he longed for was forgiveness, mercy, compassion, and love. What he longed for was God himself. But he had none of it. And the question in his heart was, how can I enter the kingdom of God? How can I be made right with God? Friends, no work of our hands can ever make us right with God. All religions in the world are about people achieving a relationship with God by their own effort. All the morality, all the rituals, all the good deeds are means of acquiring God's favor. All religions are about human achievement. And even atheism and, and secular humanism set up something as God to please and placate. It's just humans. It's just the greater good. It's just humanity. It's all rooted, ultimately, in this need to be restored to God. We have that impulse. We cannot fix the problem of our sin. Our sin leaves us dead. It destroys us. Our sin promises great things but delivers only tragedy and ruin. It will not add to your life. It will ruin it. We are slaves to sin, Paul says in Romans 6. We are of the flesh, sold under sin. That's Romans 7. We are dead in our trespasses and sin and by nature children of wrath. We want to wash ourselves clean, but we cannot. We can put on all the religious practices, all the right words, all the right deeds, all the right prayers and actions. We can come to church every single week, but these will do nothing for the longing of our souls. This is what it means to be a sinner. This is our sinful human experience. 
And this is Nicodemus' experience, weighed down by this fear. Where can he find comfort? Where can he go? This man is the teacher. Well, he goes to the one who God is clearly with. That is Jesus. So maybe this is your experience this morning. Perhaps you have come weighed down by your own sense of inadequacy. Maybe you are here and you feel the crushing weight of your sin. Maybe you feel trapped. You're exhausted. You're looking for relief. You're looking for hope. Friend, the balm that you need is Jesus. All that you are doing to make the pain go away, to make yourself feel right, whatever it might be, alcohol, drugs, relationships, sex, psychotherapy, all those things, they're not going to last. They will not give you what you're longing for. They might temporarily give you the emotional sense that things are finally right, but I promise you, I promise you, if it is not Christ, it will not last. You need Christ. Christian or non-Christian, all of us need Christ every day. And though Nicodemus did not realize that fully, he didn't realize that for some time, that's what his soul needed. That is why he came to Jesus in the night And if you're not a Christian, though you may not realize it, you need Jesus. So being here is the right place to be. So how does Jesus respond to this longing? When Nicodemus comes to him, what does Jesus say to him? Well, he teaches him two very important truths about salvation. Salvation is a work of God, and salvation comes through faith. So let's look at that first one. That salvation is a work of God. We'll read verse 3 again. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Jesus begins his answer with often repeated words throughout the book of John, truly, truly. And this is amen, amen in the Greek, which is a borrowed word from the Hebrew. And in the Hebrew, amen means so be it. It's an expression of complete and total agreement. So placing the word at the end of a statement is a way of endorsing everything that came before it. However, Jesus frequently uses it before making a statement. And this not only implies that what follows is true, but also that the person making the statement has firsthand knowledge and has real authority about what's being said. And that's why he repeats it. Truly, truly, amen, amen, I say. And so when Jesus does this, he's not merely saying, believe me, this is true. He is saying, I know this is true firsthand. And why? That's because he's the one who came up with it. He's the originator of this. Remember what John chapter 1 verse 3 said. It says, all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. He's speaking to heavenly and spiritual realities. And so in other words, when for Jesus to say truly, truly is a claim to being God. And so when Nicodemus says, we know you are a teacher come from God, Jesus responds, I am God. And no one gets to God 
unless he is born of God. Jesus here is giving authoritative and paradigm-shifting teaching to Nicodemus. And here's the heavenly truth. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And the words born again and, and born of the Spirit are repeated five times in verses 3 through 8. So for Jesus, this is key to understanding salvation. And where John writes born again in your Bible, here in verse 3, you might have a footnote that's attached to that that says that it could be translated as born from above. Uh, both are equally valid ways to translate. I think that both these things are present. I think both those meanings are present in the passage. Now, recall once again what John wrote in chapter 1, that those who receive Jesus are born not of the will of man, but of God. This is being born from above, born from God, being made into a child of God. There is a, a spiritual birth, a, a heavenly birth, a birth from above that needs to take place. And the point is that God has to do the work because it's impossible. Who can do that but God? Nicodemus picks up on this, verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, some read Nicodemus' response and, and say that he's misunderstanding Jesus. When he thinks of being born again, he automatically thinks of the birth that all people experience. And he can't understand what Jesus is telling him has to happen. And that might be right. But what if it's not that he's confused? What if it's not that he's misunderstanding Jesus? Think about it. He, he knows that Jesus just read his heart. He knows that Jesus just read his mind. He knows that there's something else that's at play here. He doesn't say to Jesus, why did you bring that up? Why are you talking to me about the kingdom? And he knows that the point that Jesus is making is that it is impossible by human effort to enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus has been trying to do that his whole life. That's why Nicodemus replies the way that he does. It's not a question of confusion. This is a rhetorical question that shows that he's tracking with Jesus. He gets that he's talking about an impossibility. A man cannot be physically born a second time. That's the analogy. And, and for the legalists, like a Nicodemus, that's a problem. That's a concerning answer. And Jesus replies to him, verses 5 through 8. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So now Jesus begins to speak about being born of water, and being born of the Spirit, and then we have the wind blowing where it wishes. What does all this mean? Remember that Nicodemus' whole life is wrapped up in the Scripture. He would have known it forward and backward. He probably would have had whole books of the Bible memorized. So Jesus gives him allusions to the scriptures in order to lead Nicodemus to the truth. And I find it interesting that he doesn't just give him the plain answer, but Jesus makes him think. 
and dig into the scriptures and consider them himself. When Jesus refers to being born of water and the Spirit, he's referring to Ezekiel 36, verses 25 and 27. We read that earlier. This was during Israel's exile. Before they would come back into the land, they would need to be cleansed. And as I read the passage, I want you to notice all of the I will statements. What takes place in this passage is a work of God. So Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What this is ultimately speaking of is the new covenant. This is God promising salvation to all who believe. And he will do this work. And do you see how this is what Jesus is alluding to? says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and cleanse you. That's, that's the water that Jesus is talking about. I will put my spirit within you. That's the spirit that Jesus is talking about. Water and the spirit are a reference to the regenerating work of God that he does by his own will in the hearts of sinners. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, I am the one who is going to do this for God's people. I am the one who will make them clean, who will make them new. You do not obey my rules in order to be made clean, in order to have a new heart, in order for the Spirit to be in you. It is because I do the work of making you clean, of making you new, of putting my Spirit in you that you obey my rules. That's how you enter the kingdom of God. And Do you see how freeing that is? That is absolutely freeing. Do you see how merciful and kind our God is? If it were up to us, and even if we could enter the kingdom of God by our own efforts, we could never keep ourselves there. We wouldn't. We know that. That's the tragedy of works righteousness. You can never keep it. You never have peace You never have freedom. Friends, if God does the work, then God is the one who keeps it. And 1 Peter 1 says that God has caused us to be born again and that our eternal life is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It's because he is the one who has done it. And in verse 6, Jesus contrasts physical birth with spiritual birth. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, So that which is human is human. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. This doesn't mean that we become spirits, but that what is impossible in verses 3 and 5 now becomes our reality. We can now see the kingdom of God. We can now enter the kingdom of God. We have the ability and the right to be a part of his kingdom. And we don't just see it from a distance, but we now belong to all things that are heavenly, all things that are spiritual. Because all that the flesh can produce is more flesh. 
The flesh cannot produce anything that is spiritual. That's the error of the Pharisees. That's Nicodemus's error. And he should have known better because the Old Testament teaches the doctrine of total depravity. It's all throughout. I'm just going to read a few verses. Genesis 6-5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Job 25, verses 4 through 6. How then can man be in the right before God? How can he who was born of woman be pure? Behold, even the moon is not bright, and the stars are not pure in his eyes. How much less man, who is a maggot, and the son of man, who is a worm? Psalm 14, 2 and 3. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. In Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The Old Testament that Nicodemus knew so well taught that no man from his flesh could produce anything that is glorifying to God. He should have known. And the Apostle Paul, who was a former Pharisee, knew this reality. After quoting from the Old Testament to prove the sinfulness of man, he says in Romans 3.20, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Again, Nicodemus should have known this. He should have known the depravity of man. He should have known that man cannot justify himself. He should have known that God needed to do the work. And that's why Jesus says in verse 7, Do not marvel that I have said to you, you must be born again. It should be plainly obvious to Nicodemus. And then in verse 8, Jesus talks about the wind blowing where it wishes. And this is another Old Testament reference. This is now one chapter later in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 37. This is the, the famous chapter of the Valley of Dry Bones, where God takes the prophet Ezekiel to the middle of a valley that was full of dry bones, meaning that they had been dead. They'd been there for a long time. God commands Ezekiel to prophesy over the bones that they would come to life, for God would cause his breath to enter them. And that word breath and spirit and wind That's all the exact same word. And that is the connection that Jesus is making to Ezekiel 37. So Ezekiel does prophesy and the bones come together. New flesh comes upon them. And then here's what it says in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 37. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Again, wind. Prophesy, son of man, say to the breath. Thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on the slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Who can bring the dead bones to life? God alone. We see the obvious theme of God needing to do the work of bringing new life. The wind moves and brings life from what is dead, and so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit of God. You can't control the wind. The wind is from above. It is invisible. It is unpredictable. 
And so is the work of the Holy Spirit. And both move according not to the will of man, but to the will of God. And if we think once again about the analogy of birth, we realize this. This is intuitive. You did not ask for your birth. You had nothing to do with the conditions that brought about you being born. It just happened to you. And Jesus' teaching that it is the same exact thing with spiritual birth. You don't control it. You are just as passive in spiritual birth as you are in physical birth. Notice the passive verbs that Jesus used in verses 3 and 5. What does he say? He says, unless one is born. That's not an action that the one is doing. That is something that is being done to that individual. This is in the passive voice. There is another actor doing this. That's why Jesus chose this analogy. The message is that it is a work of God. It's what theologians call monergistic. It isn't something that you and God do together. It is God alone. And it is crucial for us to understand this because if we try to to manufacture spiritual life, we'll fail. We cannot make ourselves born again. God has to do this. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, the reality is that without being born again, you lack the ability to see the kingdom of God. You lack the ability to enter the kingdom of God. Without being born again, you cannot understand the significance of Jesus. Without being born again, all your efforts to improve yourself are are worthless and ultimately demonstrate pride and arrogance in the face of the God who opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, if you were born again, you wouldn't be asking me this question. You'd be saying that I am the Son of God. I am the long-awaited Messiah and that I am bringing the kingdom of God, but you are not born again. Friend, you need the grace of God to work in your heart. So today, will you humble yourself and seek him? The message to all us sinners is that we can't do anything to gain our salvation. You can't add to it. God has to do it. You must give up all attempts to make yourself clean. And this is what Jesus wanted to make sure Nicodemus understood about salvation. And it is the same thing that we need to make sure that we're clear about with those that we preach the gospel to, with those we are evangelizing. But the message is not only that God alone does the work, but that you must also believe. You are required to believe what God has done in Christ to provide salvation as a gift of grace. And that's what we see next, that salvation comes through faith. Let's look at verse 9 and following. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So Jesus here addresses another crucial element of salvation, and that is human responsibility. Nicodemus once again responds to the sense of the the impossibility of these things. Jesus rebukes him, 
and offers him a teaching to help him understand. The Pharisees, again, were all about the scripture. Their lives revolved around it. That's why Jesus' response was such exacerbation. Nicodemus should understand, especially if he thinks that he knows so much that he is an authoritative teacher of the people of God, and he doesn't understand this. That's shameful. And the problem Nicodemus has is that even though he is hearing reliable testimony from Jesus and from others, he doesn't receive that testimony. He's not among those described in John chapter 1, verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Again, he's not born again. But it's not just his problem, it's everyone's problem. Starting at the end of verse 11 and all of verse 12, the word you that you see there, every single one of those is plural. That is you all, all of you. So Nicodemus is really kind of standing in as the representative of all who do not believe, all who try to make themselves right with God by their own efforts. Everyone needs to receive the testimony of Jesus. Everyone needs to believe the gospel. The words of Jesus have such moral weight that they must be believed. It's not just that they should be believed, but they must be believed. A non-Christian friend, though you do not follow Jesus, you still have a moral obligation to believe Jesus. You will be responsible for what you do in your response to Jesus and his message. Well, there are are more things that Jesus knows and, and wants to teach Nicodemus. But if Nicodemus doesn't understand the earthly things, he says, so that's the, the, the uh, new birth, the analogy of the uh, physical birth. How can he understand the heavenly things? You might think of what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. But Jesus does not leave Nicodemus hanging. And in verse 13, Jesus again references the Old Testament so that Nicodemus can understand. He says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So what is it that is so important for Nicodemus to understand about faith and salvation? Well, Jesus starts by recalling Proverbs 30, verse 4, which speaks to understanding the mind of God, understanding the wisdom of God. It says, Who has ascended from heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name? Surely you know. Jesus here is saying to Nicodemus, do you remember that proverb? It's me. I'm the answer. I am the one who has come down from heaven. What's the son's name? It's me. I am the son of man from Daniel chapter 7. This is how you need to think about me. 
Jesus gives Nicodemus the mind-blowing reality that the long-awaited Messiah is God in human flesh. And so what we see is that faith and salvation center upon the God-man, Jesus Christ. That's what he needs to know, but he can only understand this if he is born again. Intellectually, maybe we could agree that that's what you believe, but you can't understand that truth. You cannot receive that truth unless you are born again. But the wonderful thing is that Jesus doesn't just give up and say to Nicodemus, you're not getting this. Come back once you're born again. No. Instead, he tells Nicodemus about his, his mission that makes the new birth possible. He shifts from speaking as a teacher to speaking as the Messiah. And, and before looking at this mission, I want us to see how Jesus continues to engage with this man even though he is speaking heavenly truths that he does not understand. There's two things for us here. The first is that we should not shy away from teaching spiritual truths to non-spiritual people. We might be afraid of doing that because we sound weird, we feel like maybe they're not tracking and they're not understanding. But Jesus does this. And the truth is still the truth, whether or not they receive it. And we have the responsibility and the privilege to proclaim it. It's called evangelism. And second, we should be persistent in our evangelism. Though a friend might not be born again, we do not know whether the Lord will grant it to him. Remember that the wind blows where it wishes God is sovereign over the new birth. And faith, we're told in Romans 10, comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of Christ. So if Nicodemus, who knew the scripture, wouldn't receive truth from the, the greatest teacher who ever lived, don't be surprised at the people that you are trying to reach don't believe you. And neither should you give up because the message of the Messiah is too good. It's too glorious. And it's by hearing this message that we come to faith. And Jesus tells him of this message in verses 14 and 15. Jesus tells him about his mission by once again referring to the Old Testament. Jesus compares himself to something that happened in the Old Testament. He references an event recorded in Numbers, chapter 21. Here, the people of Israel spoke out against God and Moses. And so God sends fiery serpents among the people. And those who were bit would die from the poison of the snakes. This was a judgment of God. And then they, they cry out to God for mercy. And so God gives instruction to Moses to make a bronze serpent and to set it up on a pole, and he made a provision. And that is that whoever would look upon this bronze snake on the pole, they'd be saved. And Jesus compares his mission with this event. And this is, by the way, called typology. Now, the serpent, this thing, is a foreshadowing of what Christ would do. 
And Jesus is ultimately the escalation, the better version, we might say, of what is happening here in Numbers 21. So uh, a few things for us to notice in this story. First is that the serpents are from the Lord. The wrath of God is on these people for their sin of rebellion. Second, the serpent on the pole is not preventative. They wouldn't look at it so that they could not be bitten. These people were already bitten, and they had to look on it. The poison was already in them. Third, the means God chooses to save the people from his curse is the curse itself. Moses was to make a bronze serpent. And fourth, in order to be saved from God's wrath, they must look at the serpent that's hanging on the pole. So how does Jesus compare with this? Why does Jesus use this story? What does it tell us about his mission? What does it tell us about salvation? Well, just as God executed judgment against the people for their rebellion, so Jesus will execute God's judgment against rebels. In a few chapters in John 5, it says that Jesus was given authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. And the judgment of the serpents meant physical death, but the judgment of Jesus means eternal death in hell. And just as the serpent, who is the agent of judgment, was lifted up on a pole for salvation, so Jesus, the agent of judgment, must be lifted up on a cross for salvation. And those who looked upon the serpent would live physically, but those who look upon Christ will live spiritually and eternally. You see that there at the end of 14 and 15. So must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So in becoming like the snake, he was the embodiment of our sin and curse. And in becoming a curse for us, he took away our sin. By faith, the people who were bitten looked upon the bronze serpent, trusting that God would do what he promised in saving them. And by faith, we who are poisoned with the toxin of sin look upon Christ who is lifted upon the cross, believing that God is going to be faithful to do what he promises to do, and that is to forgive us of our sins and to make us born again. That is the mission of Jesus. That is why he came. He came to make atonement for our sin. He came to bring the dead to life. And you must believe. Verse 15 says that. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Everyone who believes, all the believing ones, Salvation comes through faith. And so if you're not a Christian, the question for you is, will you believe this message? He came that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. He came to cleanse the sinner's conscience. He came to change the sinner's evil heart. He came to give sinners his own spirit. He came to give new birth to those who are dead. All your longings are found in Christ. 
You don't need to clean yourself up. He will clean you up. So will you give him your life? Will you give him all of your devotion, all of your attention? Will you elevate him above all others? Will you believe that he died for you? I want to encourage you that if you are not a Christian, you should come to a small group. We have many small groups happening throughout the week. Come and discuss these things. Learn about who Christ is. Engage in the scriptures with Christians. Come and see who Christ is. Citizens Church, what a wonderful gospel we have. What a Savior. He meets all of our longings. And in Him we have salvation. He's done the work for us. So continue in your belief. Continue to look upon Christ. And let's commit ourselves to invite others to do the same. Let's commit ourselves to be people who engage those who are lost around us. Let's be people who who long to see God cause many to be born again here in Annapolis. And to this end, we, we toil, we pray with all the confidence in the world because we know that it is our Lord Jesus who does all the work. Let's conclude by hearing the word of the Lord in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And to that we all must give a hearty amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we are in awe of the power and the mercy and the grace of our Lord Jesus who would condescend to our level who would speak to us in in ways that we can understand who has come to, to purchase and redeem and to save that which is lost Father we're thankful that you have called us to be born again that we now see your kingdom, that we now enter your kingdom, that we see you and know you and can be near to you and be loved by you. What a marvelous thing, Father, that you have done this work for us, that you have made the way for us. What a freeing gospel. We pray that many in Annapolis would believe the hope of Christ. Would you strengthen us, Father, as a church to be a people who not only marvel at the gospel ourselves in our own time together as a church, but that we would proclaim the glories of Christ to those who are around us. We ask, Father, that you would do this very same thing in other gospel-preaching churches in Annapolis, that many would come to be saved, because it is not about the glory of citizens' churches, it's about the glory of Christ. 
That's what we want to see magnified. Increase your church. Increase your kingdom. Here we pray. We ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.